All right. Okay, everyone, here we are at uh, Life of Messiah. We are now beginning at section 163. Uh, in the harmonies, it's on page 226. If you're looking in your Bibles, you're looking at Mark 15, Matthew 27, verse 31, Luke 23, and John chapter 19. And uh, this section begins the procession to Calvary. And as we go through this section, from this point until the sealing of the tomb, just before his resurrection, we have 32 different stages or segments in this part of his uh, ministry, or in this part of his earthly ministry. If you look at John chapter 19, verses 16 and 7, it says, They took Yeshua, therefore, and he went out bearing the cross for himself. In the first stage, Yeshua carries his own cross to the site where he will be executed. In Matthew's account, verse 31, it says that, And when they had mocked him, they took off from him, that is the soldiers, the robe, and put on him his garments, and led him away to be crucified. What we learn is in verse 32 of Matthew's account. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, or Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to go with them that he might bear his cross. So the second stage is that Simon of Cyrene bears the cross the rest of the way. In Mark's account, chapter 15, verse 21, it says, And they compelled one passing by, Simon of Cyrene, coming from the country uh, coming from the, from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to go with them, that he might bear his cross. And Luke mentions him as well. Now, Simon is from Cyrene, which is located in North Africa. Simon was a Jew from North Africa. He's celebrating the Passover. And on this occasion, as Yeshua is carrying the cross and being led through the streets of Jerusalem, he was evidently... Uh, on his way to the temple to offer the morning Passover sacrifice. Remember, this is Friday morning. So on Thursday, the Passover lambs were being offered in the temple to be eaten Thursday night at the Passover. Then on Friday morning, there's a second offering that was offered on Passover, which was the Chagiga offering, the festival offering. So while the festival offering is being offered, Yeshua is carrying the cross through the streets of uh, Jerusalem. Simon is on his way to the temple to offer up that sacrifice as is uh, indicated in the law. What's interesting is that uh, Mark and Luke, they also, as I said, mentioned Simon, uh, Simon, but only Mark mentions that he is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, Mark wrote, as we saw at the very beginning, a year and a half ago, that Mark's account is targeted toward the Romans. That's why it's the shortest of the Gospels. It is concerned with quick action, uh, much in the interest of the Roman uh, audience. Paul writes the letter to the congregation at Rome. And in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, he mentions the names of these family members. He mentions Alexander and Rufus. So this event must have led to Simon's salvation and his wife is mentioned in Romans and their two sons in Romans 16 verse 13. 
We're not told here what it was about Yeshua carrying the cross and being led to his death that moved Simon to such a degree. But perhaps one of the things was that Yeshua's handling of the suffering was very different than what normally was the case. In the case of most people who were scourged, often they didn't survive the scourging and they died. But those that did survive and then carried their cross were in excruciating pain. And often they were crying out in their pain as they're carrying their cross to the place of execution. Many even would cry out cursing their tormentors. And in some instances, we know that the crying out became so intense that the Roman soldiers would, were known to cut out their tongues so that they couldn't hear them in their anguish. Yeshua's death or Yeshua's suffering was totally different. His suffering was like a lamb led to the slaughter, as Isaiah says, and therefore he did not open his mouth and he did not shout out uh, in anguish and he did not accuse his accusers. In fact, he prays for them instead. And so by not cursing his oppressors, by not crying out and by praying for them, this must have impressed Simon with regard to his claims to be the Messiah, and he must have embraced him. In Romans chapter 1, the congregation at Rome was not planted by any of the apostles. It already existed, and Paul wanted to make his way there, and doesn't until the end of his own uh, ministry. But he writes the letter to that congregation at Rome uh, earlier on in his ministry, and it already existed before he even got there. So perhaps Simon, who was from North Africa, settles in Rome and evidently his family is there when Paul writes. Now, the third segment is found. So we first of all, we find in John chapter 19, he's taking his cross and he's bearing it himself. In Mark's account, verse 21, the second stage is Simon of Cyrene is compelled to carry the cross. In Luke's account, chapter 23, verse 27, we find his lament over Jerusalem. And so we find that only Luke records this event because Luke has a, a primary concern for women. So he records a lot of things that deals with the women. And this lament over Jerusalem focuses on the women. So it says in verse 27, And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who bewailed and lamented him. These were professional lamenters. And when they would see individuals in duress, or if there was a death, these individuals would be hired, or they would naturally come to these occasions, and they would be wailing. And uh, as they're crying out, uh, Yeshua turns to them, verse 28. And he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. He's telling them that the A.D. 70 judgment, which was set back in paragraph 61 and was the result of the national rejection of Yeshua as the Messiah, will fall on Israel and it will come on the Jewish people and it will come in about 40 years. So in A.D. 70, when the judgment hits, it will be especially severe in Jerusalem and for the women. So he says in verse 29, for behold, the days are coming in which they will say, bless are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the breasts that never gave suck. In other words, 
when the severity of that judgment hits, women who had children, women who were nursing, would be especially uh, suffering during that time. So whereas normally women who have children or women who have young children are blessed, Yeshua is saying there's going to come a time and we're going to say blessed if you didn't have any children, blessed if you weren't nursing any children. And so uh, in verse 31, he say, then he says, and then shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Verse 31, for if they do these things in the green tree, what shall be done in the dry? This was a Jewish idiom. You see a similar statement made in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 47. The idea is, if I suffer this much when I am innocent, consider how much you will suffer when you are considered guilty. And so he's saying, if they do this to me and I'm innocent, imagine what's going to happen to you who are guilty of rejecting me as the Messiah. In Matthew's account, chapter 27, at uh, verse, I mean Mark's account, chapter 15, verse 22, we have the fourth stage. He arrives at Golgotha, and they brought him unto the place of Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. Notice in Matthew's account, chapter 27, verse 33, and they brought him to Golgotha, the place of a skull. You'll notice also in John's account, chapter 19, it says they brought him unto the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. Golgotha means the place of the skull, or all four gospels state this. The point is not that the place looks like a skull, but it is the place of the skull. That is to say, it's the place of execution, the place of death, place where people die and thus becomes the place of the skull. Often if you go to Israel, they'll bring you to the garden tomb. And not far from the garden tomb is an Arab bus station. And above the Arab bus station is a rock quarry. And the rocks that are quarried out of that, they'll look at it and they'll say, you see, it almost looks like a skull because Yeshua was crucified at the place of a skull, a place that looked like a skull. But that's not what the phrase means here at all. And that's not the right site for the resurrection account or for Golgotha. It, it doesn't say in the text that it's the place that looks like a skull. It's the place of a skull, which means it's the place of death. The place where they executed many people over time in the city of Jerusalem where the uh, crucifixion stakes were placed. It's not unlike in, uh, in the Midwest where you have Boot Hill. It doesn't mean that the hill looks like a boot. It's because this is where individuals were gunned down and died with their boots on. So it was called Boot Hill. Similarly, this is the place where people went to their executions and then once they were buried, of course, they decomposed and thus you were rendered as skeleton. So to call it the place of a skull meant it was the place where executions took place and where uh, individuals were killed. Um, it's also important to note that speaking about the place of execution and resurrection, if you go to Israel, the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre which is controlled by, I think, the Roman Catholics and the Greek Orthodox. I think they share it. There's also part of the site, there's an Ethiopian uh, church, gr Christian group. That is most likely the right spot. It doesn't look like the right spot because in many of these uh, Christian sites, uh, 
they plowed the area and they built a church on it. So it doesn't look like this spot. But from an archaeological point of view, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, though today is inside some of the walls of Jerusalem, it was outside the walls of Jerusalem in the first century. Jerusalem has been expanded and additional walls have been incorporated. So now it's inside the city walls. But in the first century, it was outside. And the garden tomb, which uh, you oftentimes go to and you see photographs of, that location was not discovered until the late 1880s. And uh, is rendered, uh, and, it, and it is out, it is actually uh, out further out from the city walls. That's true. But uh, it's not the right spot. The, um, the right spot, most likely, and the earliest recognition is uh, where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is. And when you go in, you'll find, whether or not they've got this right or not, you'll find that there's a slab where alleg allegedly when Yeshua was taken down from the cross, he was laid out and prepared for his burial. To, his right, to your right, there's a stairwell and you go up, up the stairs and there are... There's a beautiful mosaic wall that uh, the tile, mosaic tile of the imagery of Abraham offering up Isaac. And then as you go up the stairs to this like balcony, that is understood to be where the hill of, of Golgotha was. And then he was taken down and prepared for his burial on the slab uh, by Joseph of Arimathea and, uh, and Nicodemus. And then from there you go off to the left side and you go through these corridors, then you go down this cavern, and you'll see all these niches in the sides of the, of, um, of the church wall because it's actually a church built into a tomb. And so there's all these little tombs. And as you go down, they uh, specify this is the place where he was laid. Now, we don't know that for sure, but that area is most likely, and the evidence is, uh, most compelling that that is the spot. So when you go to Israel, you have to go to the garden tomb to see what it might have looked like in the time of Yeshua, but you have to go to the church in order to be in the right spot. So it's just the nature of the beast. Is that one of the spots that uh, Constantine's mother? Yes. Yeah. So that's going back 300, and that's the earliest record we have of, uh, of uh, where the site is. So uh, in Mark's account, verse 22, he arrives at Golgotha, the place of execution, uh, and all the gospel records uh, mention it. In uh, Mark, verse 23, we have the fifth stage of, his, of uh, this period. And they offered him wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. In uh, Matthew's account, he says they offered him to drink uh, wine mingled with gall. And when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. And uh, so the myrrh and gall was meant to help to deaden the pain just before the nails would be driven into uh, the wrists and then through the, uh, through the ankles. So it would make one lightheaded and it would hope to make it more uh, bearable. But because Yeshua is taking on our sin... And there were things he needed to fulfill by carrying our sorrows and carrying our sins. And words from the cross that he needs to utter, according to scripture, he does not take the wine mingled with myrrh because he's going to suffer the full wrath of God, not having, uh, or the full wrath of man, not having 
uh, deadened any of the pain. And he also wants to be fully conscious as he fulfills and finishes the entire uh, atoning process. So he suffers the pain even more severely than others that might have been, uh, that would have been crucified during this period. In uh, paragraph 164, we have the, f- the beginning of the first of the three, the first three hours of the six hours that Yeshua is uh, on the cross. In the first three hours, from nine in the morning till twelve in the afternoon, he suffers the wrath of man. So in Mark's account, verse 24, we have the sixth stage. And they crucified him. They parted his garments among them. He casted lots upon them, which each should take. And so here's the Messiah of Israel. While on the temple mount, the lambs, the festival offering are being offered. Yeshua on Calgary, the place of execution on Mount Calvary, the hill, that he is being offered as the Passover Lamb of God. Now, the Romans used four different kinds of poles to execute people on. They used, two of them were primarily used in Italy. One was a straight pole, and the individual's feet would be nailed to the bottom of the pole, and his arms would be extended and, and nailed to the top uh, as such. Most likely, Yeshua is not crucified on that kind of a pole because we know that there were three nails used and that would only require two. Another kind of uh, stake that was used was an X so that you had the hands and everything was extended and you had the hands, arms, and legs. That would require four. So we know that it was most likely not uh, that kind of a execution stake. And both of those were primarily used in, in uh, Italy. The other two types were T-shapes. One had the T on top of the cross, and one had the T lower. Most likely, he, it had the T that was lower, because we're told that when you had a cross with a T on top, in both of those crosses, by the way, you had a platform for your feet, so that the individual could pu- push himself up on his feet. Because the way that a person died through crucifixion was by asphyxiation. You suffocated. And the reason was that your hands are extended, your feet are laid out, and your body is, is uh, the weight of your body is pulling down. So your diaphragm cannot get any air. So what you had to do, and they would take the nails and put them through your wrists. Of course, they put it through your hands. The weight of your body would just, uh, your hands would just be t- would tear. So they put it through your wrists. And sometimes they may have had rope tied around you, but we're not told that in the gospel. So most likely in Yeshua's case, just had the nails through uh, the wrist. And so these two bones here, you could stand upon. And then through his feet, and then a platform. And the platform was by the balls of your feet, so that as you droop down, you could push up on your feet, and then sort of push on your wrist so that you can get up and you you took a breath of air and you stayed up there as long as you could and then of course as you got tired you would exhale and you would droop down and you would hang there for a while and then you would push yourself up in order to uh, to breathe and um, that's why at the end of the account you'll find Yeshua gives up his spirit he dies on the cross but usually crucifixion can take days 
sometimes weeks, people have been known to survive it. Uh, it's excruciating. And it's a slow death. So when Nicodemus and Joseph, go, uh, when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus go to Pilate to ask for the body, the first thing Pilate says is, he died so soon. And so he calls for the centurion to find out if he truly has died. The centurion was there on the scene, as we'll see, when he died. And so he tells Pilate, yes, he really did die. And so Pilate then gives them permission to take down the body. One of the soldiers spears him in his side uh, in the process, but they, none of his bones are broken according to the pro prophecy. But the other two thieves or robbers, we'll talk about them in a moment, when they were found on the cross, they were still alive. So what the Romans would do is they take mallets and they break your knees so that when you, your knees are broke, now you can't push up anymore. And then they just wait for you to, uh, to basically asphyxiate on, on the cross. So that's why Yeshua, none of his bones are broken because he gives up his, his spirit. He, his life is never taken from him. He gives it up. We'll see that as we come to it. But in the case of the others, they're still holding on. And because it's the end of this Friday night, the Sabbath, they want to take them down from the cross so as not to desecrate the Sabbath. Because that Sabbath, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread falls, so it's a high Sabbath. We'll come to that. But I'm only mentioning that because here, we're, to we're told in verse 24, they crucified him. Now, if... It was a cross with a T on top and the platform for your feet on the bottom. If a sign was erected on the cross, it was placed on the bottom near your feet. But if the cross was uh, not at the top of the pole, but in the center or somewhere near the top, then if they put a sign uh, up about who you were and why you were executed, the sign was put over your head. In the gospel records, we're told that they indeed put a sign over Yeshua's head. And it said that Yeshua of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So in all likelihood, though we cannot be absolutely sure, in all likelihood, he was crucified on a cross that the T was lower than the top. Uh, but it's certainly possible that it might have been that one because of the, the nails. And maybe they did get it up there somehow. But most likely, it was, uh, it was the other one. Okay, so, um, so in Mark's account, uh, verse 24, we have the sixth stage where he is uh, then uh, crucified. And uh, in Luke's account, looking at Luke 23, verse 34, we have the seventh stage, which is um, the first of seven words or statements Yeshua makes from the cross. Notice in verse 34, he says, And Yeshua said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they did. So his first words from the cross is prayer for the forgiveness of those who are in the act of crucifying him. It is for those who are doing this in uh, ignorance. It does not include Annas or Caiaphas or Herod Antipas or Pilate, for example. But he's saying this to those that are engaged, the soldiers that have been ordered to see that he is crucified. And those that might just be staring there, not knowing exactly what's going on, but are engaged in the process. But he's not forgiving, uh, as we know from the book of Acts, where Peter says these individuals I just mentioned are all guilty, along with the Jewish leaders who betrayed 
um, Messiah into the hands of the Romans for uh, execution. In uh, John's account, in verse 23, John chapter 19, verse 23, the eighth stage is they part his garments. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Yeshua, they took his garments and made four parts to every soldier, a part also, and the coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. And they said, therefore, one to another, let us not rend it, but let's cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, that they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture they cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Of course, they don't know that's what the passage is saying. John is just saying they did that, and inadvertently, they're fulfilling what scripture said about Messiah's garments would be uh, not be parted, but rather would be uh, gambled for. Now, in the first century, there are different types. Uh, there are types of clothing that uh, a Jewish man uh, would wear. So the typical Jewish clothing of the first century, first of all, you had an outer garment or an, uh, an upper garment. You had an inner garment, which was like a tunic or an undergarment. There was a head covering. There was uh, usually shoes or sandals. And then there was the outer coat or the outer robe. So as they are uh, gambling for his clothes, they're first of all gambling for his upper garment. Someone won that. Then they gambled for his inner garment, the tunic and the undergarments. Someone, they gambled for his head covering, for his shoes. When they came to the robe, they saw that this was a very good piece of clothing. Now they saw something that was... Uh, that had real quality to it. And they decided because it was woven from the top down, it was like one piece of cloth that was fully woven through. So it was made in an expert-like manner. They said, let's not divide this up. Let's not tear up this at all. Let's just throw dice for it so someone has a nice piece of clothing. Remember, Yeshua was taken care of by wealthy women. And evidently, one of those women had provided him with a robe that was noteworthy. And that robe he had worn or had been wearing and thus they were throwing, uh, they were gambling for it. That's why it says to every soldier a part. They made four parts to every soldier. So they had these different uh, outer clothings or various clothings that they divided among themselves. And when they saw the robe, they just said, let's keep it intact because it was a nice piece uh, of clothing. So in John 23 to 24, we have that they are um, gambling for his clothes. Luke chapter 8, verse 1 to 3 says Yeshua's ministry was financed by several wealthy women. One of them might have given him this, this coat. And then in John chapter 19, verse 22, we have the ninth uh, uh, stage of this, in which it says, And Pilate wrote a title also and put it on the cross. And there was written, Yeshua of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And uh, so, uh, in John chapter 19, the, um, this uh, scripture is uh, placed. Uh, and usually an accu the accusation for why the individual was being crucified. But in this instance, it's not written so much as an accusation, but as a title. And also take note in John's account that it was written in three languages. John chapter 19 tells us... Uh, verse 20, that it was written in Hebrew, Latin for the Romans, and also Greek, which was the common language. So it was written in Hebrew for the Jews, Greek for the Greeks, and Latin for the Romans. Um, 
The leaders then ask Pilate to change the wording. So they say in verse 21, the Jews, therefore, the Jewish leaders, said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I've written, I have written. So they ask him to change the wording, but Pilate refuses to do so, getting a, uh, perhaps what we might think of as a small piece of revenge for being taken advantage of and manipulated by the Jewish leaders. They wanted him to write, not that he is the king of the Jews, but that he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate said, listen, what I've written is going to stay. And, uh, and there wasn't to be any question about it. The tenth stage is found in Matthew's account, verse 27, uh, chapter 27, verse 38. And we're told that two others were crucified with him. This is in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 12, that tells us he was to be, the Messiah was to be executed with two others. Then was there crucified with him two robbers, one on the right hand, one on the left. Now, by robbers, it doesn't mean that these guys were breaking into people's homes and uh, stealing things. The word robber is a reference to that they were members of the zealots. They were members of ones that were breaking into Roman depots, taking supplies from the Romans in order to fuel the rebellion. So they weren't thieves in the common sense of the word, but they were ones that were in rebellion against Rome. And their role in their fight against Rome was to take things from the Roman uh, various depots, weaponry, foods, uh, uh, sandals, whatever it might be, to equip the zealots to fight against the Romans. They were found out, and now they are worthy of death because of their rebelliousness against the Romans. This is what Barabbas was as well. So it said Barabbas was a robber, but he was a robber in the sense that he was a rebel robber who was fighting against uh, the Romans. So these two guys were zealots, and they were um, uh, crucified along with the Messiah. If you, you look at Mark's account, verse 29, in chapter 15, we have um, the 11th stage, and we are introduced to mockery. It is the fifth mockery that Messiah endures from those who pass by. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you that destroy the temple and, and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So now the area where Yeshua was crucified near what is today the Church of the Holy Sepulchre the area is near one of the gates into the entrance to the city of Jerusalem. So this is like nine in the morning. So as individuals are coming into Jerusalem to go up to the temple to offer up the Hagiga offering, the Passover offering on the first day of Passover, they're coming by and they're seeing Yeshua with the two, uh, two uh, thieves, two rebel robbers being crucified with him. And in route, they see him Knowing what he has said, having heard him, uh, they begin to mock him on the cross as well. In Mark's account, in verses 31 and 32, we have another form of mockery, uh, 12th stage. The sixth mockery, this time it's committed by the Jewish leaders, both Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 31 it says, in like manner also the chief priests, Sadducees, were mocking him among themselves with the scribes, Pharisees. And they said he saved others himself he cannot save. So they continue the mockery. 
In Luke's account, chapter 23, verse 36, we have the 13th stage, the seventh mockery, this time by Roman soldiers. So you had common Jewish people coming into the city mocking him. Then you had the Jewish leaders, Sadducees and Pharisees mocking him. Now you have Jewish soldiers in Luke 23, verse 36. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him, offering him vinegar and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. In Matthew's account, verse 44, uh, Matthew 27, we have the, uh, the uh, 14th uh, stage. And in verse 44, we have the 8th mockery that he endures at the end of his life. This time by both men, uh, by both of the men that were crucified with Yeshua. Look at verse 44. And the robbers also that were crucified with him cast upon him the same reproach. So notice that even those crucified with him, both of them, are mocking him at this time. Notice that all four, four mockeries by the passerbys, by the soldiers, by the Jewish leaders, and by the uh, rebel robbers, all four involve uh, mocking his messianic claims, saying he saved others, he's done these signs, let him demonstrate he's the Messiah. And all four groups challenge Yeshua to prove his claims by coming down from the cross. It's almost as if this is Satan's final attempt to get Yeshua to come down from the cross so as not to provide the final atonement. Uh, for sin. Remember, the initial intent was for Messiah to be arrested after Passover so as not to create a disturbance. Certainly, Satan is aware that he was to die on Passover to be the atoning sacrifice, the Passover lamb. He doesn't want him to die at this time either. But Yeshua is in control. So he said to Judas, what you must do, do quickly. Do it now. And he does do it now in having him arrested. And we've read through the trial and we've gone through all of that. Now this may be the evil one's final attempt, as it were, a temptation not to endure the complete suffering, but rather to come down from the cross, prove he's the Messiah and demonstrate it uh, to everyone around him. But Yeshua refuses to obey those mockery, uh, mockerings and rather to fulfill uh, God's call on his life. In Luke's account, chapter 23, looking at verses 39 to 42, uh, we have the 15th stage. And here is the conversion of one of those who are crucified with him. So in verse 39, and one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him. Somehow, after he himself was, was mocking Yeshua, he realizes the fallacy of his words. And he repents of them. And he says, do you not even fear God? So this is one that is now fearing God. Perhaps like Simon of Cyrene, who saw Yeshua carrying the cross, suffering the indignities of the crowd in a silent prayerful manner. Now this one crucified next to him is seeing how Yeshua is suffering quietly, is suffering uh, as unto the Lord and has uttered his first words that those who are crucifying him would be forgiven. So they pro those words and his demeanor has probably had a major effect on him, which has led to him 
giving his life to Messiah. The same thing is going to happen with a Roman centurion. He's going to stand, he'll be there, and he's going to observe Yeshua dying. And as he observes him dying, and then he says he gives up his spirit, the centurion says, indeed, surely this was the Messiah. In none of those accounts are we told what it was that convinced them he truly was the Messiah, but it must be something about his character in his suffering and in his death. So now he says, do you not even fear God? So now the implication is, I am fearing God right now. And are you not fearing God? He says, seeing you are in the same condition. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And so he said to Yeshua, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice this one who has come to know Messiah as his Savior. Notice four things he reveals. First of all, he reveals that he knows Yeshua, uh, that he was a sinner. He says in verse 40, 41, We indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. So he realizes we're, we're being executed because we deserve it. And he realizes that he is a sinner. And that's always the first step in anyone coming to faith. Individuals need to know that we have violated the standards of God, that we are in need of him. And this is the first thing he realizes. The second thing he realizes is his Yeshua's sinlessness, that he's qualified to be the Messiah. He says, this man has done nothing amiss. Not only, it doesn't just say this man has done nothing to deserve this. He says, this man has done nothing ever wrong. And so he's come to realize in his limited time with him. You don't need a lot of time with Yeshua to come to realize who he is. But if we're honest and we're open and we have an open heart, the Lord makes himself known to us. So as here he is, Yeshua at his quote unquote worst moment, the moment not when he's walking on the water or turning, uh, multiplying the loaves or raising someone from the dead, but at that moment when he is suffering and in anguish and a moment near his death, he sees that he's sinless and thus realizes that he is qualified to be the Messiah. Third thing he realizes is that he can save him. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he says, you can remember me. That's another way of saying you can save me. One, for example, in the book of Exodus, the Lord says that he remembered his promise to, his, to Abraham and the patriarchs. His point is that he's now acting to save. That's what it means when God says he remembers us. It just doesn't mean he hasn't forgotten about us. It doesn't mean he just knows something. But he's going to act in behalf of someone. Or he's going to act in judgment. So when God remembers if we've been obedient or responsive to his grace, he'll save us. If we are arrogant and disobedient and rebellious and he remembers us, we'll be judged. So the idea of remembering has to do with what the consequences are of his remembering who we are. So when he says, um, remember me when you come into your kingdom, he's saying, save me. Why is he saying to Yeshua, save me? Because he knows he can. So he knows he's in need of him. He knows he's the one that can save him for he's sinless. And he's the one that will save him. And then finally, he also knows that Yeshua will come again to his kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's not talking about when you go into heaven. He's saying, remember me when you establish your kingdom. 
He's really praying that he might be resurrected from the dead so as to enter the kingdom. There's no indication here that he has a sense that I'm going to heaven. But rather the idea is that when your Messiah comes to establish his kingdom, remember me, which is really a prayer for resurrection, which is a very common Jewish expectation and Jewish understanding. In uh, Luke verse 43, we have the 16th stage, which is his second statement from the cross. Luke 23, 43. The first statement, Father, forgive him. This time he says, Verily I say unto you, Today you shall be with me in paradise. They're different. He said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom, which is remember me in resurrection when you establish your kingdom. Yeshua says, Today you'll be with me in my kingdom. No, he's not going to establish the kingdom now. He says, I will remember you. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, paradise is not heaven either. As I said earlier in the study of the, of the life of Messiah, you remember in Luke 16 where you have the rich man and Lazarus both die and they go into hell. Hell is the abode of the dead. It's neither good nor bad. And the abode of the dead had two compartments. It had a compartment, Hades, which was bad, place of suffering, where the rich man found himself. And then there was the... Uh, abode of the righteous Abraham's bosom also called paradise and there was a chasm between them the chasm though did not prohibit each individuals from in either place from seeing each other and so it says of the rich man he could see Lazarus and he could see that he was in bliss and he even says if only you could put your finger into some water to give me a drop but there's a great chasm that we can't cross over to either side This place of paradise, or Abraham's bosom, was the place that Yeshua would go upon his death. And upon his death, he would descend into Hades, Peter says. But Hades is, or hell, but it is the abode of the dead. But he's not going into hell, the place of suffering, Hades. He's going into paradise, the abode of the dead of the righteous. And the reason why there's such a place is because up until the death of Messiah... All the righteous went to paradise, awaiting the Messiah's death, whose death alone could enable them to enter into the, into the very presence of God. So when Yeshua says, today you'll be with me in paradise, is because when this righteous man dies, he's going to paradise. And when Yeshua dies, the first place he'll go is paradise. Why does he go there? Peter tells us to make a proclamation doesn't tell us his words, but the proclamation is that he has made atonement for sin and now you are qualified, you are able to stand the presence of God. Yeshua then empties paradise, brings all the righteous with him into the very presence of God so that today paradise is empty. It still exists, but it's empty. And when individuals die from the time of Yeshua's death, such as this individual, Till the very present, when we die, to be absent from the bodies, to be in the presence of the Lord. So paradise is not a place for us any longer, because Messiah has provided that atonement. Hell, however, or Hades, is still the abode of the unrighteous, and they are in a place of torment or suffering. And when, at the end of time, there is the lake of fire, the final judgment, it says both Hell and Hades, that is the entire abode of the dead that existed up until that time, are cast into the lake of fire. By the way, there's a third place that the scriptures mention in First Peter, which is referred to as Tartarus. It's the only place where it's mentioned, but Peter tells us that's the abode of 
some of the fallen angels that rebelled against Satan. Some of them were not told what it was they did, but acted so heinously, so wickedly, that they are not permitted, uh, even in a limited fashion, to be a part of the evil one's entourage to wreak havoc on the earth. So they are already consigned to Tartarus, waiting the time of final judgment when Satan and all the fallen angels will also be cast uh, into the lake of fire. So there's actually these three places. There's Hades, the place of the unrighteous. There's Paradise, the place of the righteous, which is now emptied. And there's Tartarus, the place of some of the uh, fallen angels that rebelled. We're not told what the rebellion was that separated them, but some suggest it's from Genesis chapter 6, where there were some that had cohabitated with women and created the Nephilim, which is fallen ones. And that's a whole other story. We don't need to go there. But just to get an idea of the distinction, when he says, remember me in your kingdom, he's talking about resurrection for the kingdom. Yeshua says, no, you're going to be with me in paradise. And then ultimately with me in the very presence of God. It doesn't say that, but that's what's implied. Yes, that's in Ephesians 4, and that's very possible. But it also could be sort of a general statement that Paul is making when he speaks of leading captivity captive, meaning uh, those that were in bondage to sin are now... Uh, captive unto the Lord and then it says and he gave gifts to men so it might be taken that way but it's also very probable that it's taken in a more metaphorical sense maybe metaphor is not the right word but in in the sense of being captive to sin and now being uh, freed from that captivity and given gifts so as uh, to serve one another in Ephesians 4 it's interesting because Paul says that he gave gifts to men but the gifts in Ephesians 4 are redeemed individuals. Because he says, and then he gave some as apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers. So what is he saying? He led some captive unto himself out of the bondage of sin. And then he transforms them in such a way that they, these once captive ones are now gifts to the body of Messiah to uh, serve the body and equip the body. So interesting kind of an it's idea. It's also a quote from Psalm 68, 18. Okay. Kelly? Uh, didn't the centurion say that this was a son of God? We're not there yet. We'll see what he says okay. when we get there. First of all, I agree with you about the uh, Tartarus thing. Really? I think that, that uh, <laughs> those were, that's what they did. Well, we those had to come a year and a half before we agreed <laughs> on something. No, 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 no. No, no, I don't. Two questions. Tartarus. Uh, for those fallen angels, go. T A R T A R U S. Tartarus. Tartarus. Yeah. Greek word. Yeah. A um, couple of things. What do you think? What is the meaning of Jesus' asking God to forgive? Whom did he ask God would forgive? Well, that's what I mentioned. I think he's asking, for, he's extending forgiveness to those that acted in ignorance. Okay, so could that... So some of the soldiers that are engaged in this, they're, they're not acting out of any personal malice 
rejection or otherwise. They're just carrying out their orders. So there's no reason to infer that would extend to the Pharisees or Annas and Caiaphas in that crowd? Not, the, not to those that had deliberately and are standing there uh, consenting to what's happening. Because later in the book of Acts, um, it says that these individuals are guilty. Right. And is there any reason to interpret today they shall be with me in paradise since there was not punctuation in the Greek as a comma coming after today? The implication being that, verily I say unto thee, today thou shalt be with me in paradise, implying a future event and place. Well, I think that's probably trying to figure out another way to take it than what it appears in its normal reading. I think he, he and it's certainly they all will die today. Right, but yeah. in other words, the paradise not in fact being Abraham's bosom, but in fact being the millennium, millennial earth. Right? Oh, I see what you're saying. I don't know. It just doesn't seem natural to me. But okay, uh, so let's see. We were on. Uh, we were looking at uh, verse forty-three, right? So, um, and that was his second words from from the cross. Now, looking at John, uh, the seventeenth stage in John chapter tw uh, twenty, John chapter nineteen, verse twenty-five uh, through twenty-seven, we have the, his third statement from the cross. But they were standing by the cross of Yeshua, his mother, that is uh, Mary, and his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Yeshua therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, that's John, he said unto his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her unto his own home. So we have these four women, Mary Magdalene. We have Mary, the mother of James and Yosis. Those are two of Yeshua's disciples. And uh, this Mary is referred to as the wife of Cleopas. And you see that in verse 25, but also Mark 15, 40, Matthew 27, 56. Um, tradition tells us that Cleopas... Um, was the brother of Joseph. And if that tradition is correct, um, then James and Yosis are cousins to Yeshua. So you've got uh, relatives that are connected to him. We're also told at the cross is one who would be Salome, Mark 15, verse 40, her Hebrew name Shulamite. In Matthew 27, verse 56, she's the mother of the sons of Zebedee, John and James. So we see that even the parents, at least case the mothers, of the disciples also come to faith. In John 19, verse 25, uh, she would be the sister of Mary, the mother of Yeshua, thus the aunt of Yeshua. Um, and her sons... James and John would be cousins of Yeshua. Now, the, that's if the tradition is correct, right? Now, what's interesting, too, is that Yeshua is fulfilling the Mosaic law in all of its entirety. And the eldest son is responsible to take care of his mother upon the death of the father or the husband. 
So he's fulfilling his mosaically commanded role as the eldest son to take care of his mother. He chooses to place Mary in the hands of his beloved disciple, John, rather than any of his half-brothers. He had four half-brothers, James, um, uh, Judas, uh, Joseph, and uh, Simon. what's that? James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And Simon. So there are four that are named in the Gospels. But rather than entrust his mother to them, he entrusts his mother to John. Because at that point, they are not believers. They will become believers, at least we know uh, James and uh, Judas, after the resurrection of Messiah. So at this point, he entrusts them to uh, John. Tradition tells us that, and the scripture tells us, from that point on to the end of her life, uh, John takes care of John's the youngest, so he lives to be 95, to 95, and his final place of ministry is in uh, Ephesus. And he's the one that writes the book of Revelation from the island of Patmos, which is right off the coast of Ephesus, Asia Minor, the western side of Turkey. Evidently, he stays in Jerusalem where Mary is living and where he is staying until her death, and then at some point later... Once he's fulfilled his obligation to Yeshua's mother, then he uh, takes off in ministry and finds himself in Asia Minor. In paragraph 165, we then have the second th beginning of the second three hours on the cross, from 12 to 3, whereas up to this point he's suffering the wrath of mankind. Here he's suffering the wrath of God, from 12 to 3. In Luke's account, chapter 23... Verses 44, 45, um, we have the 18th stage. And it says, And it was now about the sixth hour, and a darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, the sun's light failing. That's uh, in Luke's account. Normally, this would be the brightest time of day in the land of Israel, and now it's turned to darkness. Perhaps at this point, the Shekinah glory is receding from Messiah because he's now suffering the wrath of God and darkness begins to encompass uh, the earth. And evidently, it extended out, maybe not to the whole earth, we don't know, but it certainly extended out beyond the land of Israel. There are testimonies that uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum mentions with regard to this darkness. So he tells us, that a Greek scientist in Egypt, Dionysius, he saw this a profound darkness in Heliopolis. Interesting, he sees it in the city of Heliopolis because Heliopolis means city of the sun. A, another scientist, Greek scientist in Egypt, uh, Diogenes, uh, or Diogenes, uh, he writes, there was a solar... Um, Darkness of such like that uh, that either the deity himself suffered at that moment or he sympathized with one who did. So that's the, the way that he was explaining how pervasive this darkness was. This Greek scientist, he said, there was such a solar darkness of such a kind that the only way to explain it would be to understand that the deity himself died, God himself died, or at that moment, one 
uh, or he, that is God, sympathized with one who did. And what's interesting about that is he's right on both counts. You know, the son of, of God, the Messiah of Israel, is God come in the flesh. Deity had died, you might say. And, um, and yet at the same time, God the Father was sympathizing with his son uh, who had died. In either case, it is a um, profound statement. And that by the hands of, um, of pagans. He makes, Arnold makes reference to a Roman writer, uh, Flagan, who was in Asia Minor or Turkey. And in his writings on this occasion, he mentions a thick darkness occurred so that they, in, at the midday they could see the stars in heaven. This individual also mentions an earthquake at the sixth hour. And when we read further in the Gospels, we'll note that at this juncture, an earthquake occurred as well. The darkness marks the point of Messiah's spiritual death, which he will suffer the eternal alienation from God and eternal suffering for mankind in the space of three hours. That's the mystery. How he endured an eternity of suffering in a period of three hours. But what is happening is he is experiencing the eternal wrath of God. Here's another interesting mystery about this. And that is he's already experiencing spiritual death before he dies physically. So he's already experiencing separation, alienation from God. He's already taking on the sin of the world and he's already experiencing the suffering as a result of that and that before he dies physically. What was the first pagan reference you made? The uh, first, first one was, um, let me get it here, was uh, Dionysius. Dionysius and he was where? In Heliopolis. Heliopolis, Egypt? Egypt. So, obviously, it wasn't a local phenomenon. Right, and that's what, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It, may not, it may not have, it may have um, shrouded the earth. We would expect that there would be some testimony. We do have some testimony as far as Egypt and Turkey. So, we know that it wasn't just localized to Jerusalem. So, it wasn't just an eclipse. It was something much more pervasive because in both instances, they're saying it was something they've never experienced before. Two of them are scientists, so they knew of eclipses. One of them says that it was so dark they saw the stars and, and, at midday. And he also includes this earthquake. And what is the source of these writings? Where, where did we... uh, I'm not sure where he's got okay. them, but that's his references. Right. We could check that out. Right. And then um, the, uh, the 20th stage is found in Matthew's account. Um, oh, excuse me. The... The 19th uh, stage is found in Matthew's account. Matthew verse 46, it says, and, uh, and about the ninth hour, Yeshua cried with a loud voice, and now around three, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So in Jewish thought, Jewish practice, by quoting the first verse of a passage here, Psalm 22, verse 1, he's indicating the entire chapter, the entire passage is relevant to him. So when he quotes the first verse, he's indicating 
that he is applying the whole verse to himself. He's not just saying words. He's deliberately quoting the first verse of Psalm 22, saying he's now in the process of fulfilling this passage. And the context of Psalm 22 is a cry for help, not a cry for despair. So he's willingly giving his life. So he's not crying out of despair, but he's crying that God would help him. In Psalm 22, God does help the writer, there it's David, because at the end of the chapter, he delivers his soul from uh, death. So in other words, the end of Psalm 22 speaks of his resurrection. And thus here, uh, the cry is answered, for he will be resurrected. And thus, he dies spiritually, even before he dies physically, and he's uh, guaranteed a physical resurrection even before, before he dies. And there may be something here of a spiritual resurrection as he's delivered from that suffering because it will, his eternal separation from God ends. And then he just gives up his spirit and descends to paradise. So when he says those words, he's enduring eternal separation and at the same time, it's not a cry of despair, but a cry for help. God will help him. And it is brought to a conclusion. And thus he, uh, hold on one minute, is spared the, um, uh, the, or the suffering it comes to an end in a moment. And that's the mystery, of course. Also, by the way, this is the only place in Scripture where Yeshua addresses God as his God. Every place else, he always addresses God as his father. 170 times, God, Yeshua calls God his father. 21 times, he refers to him as my father. This is the one and only time where he no longer refers to him as father, but as God. So what is happening is, Yeshua's relationship to the father changes. Up to this point, he had a paternal relationship as a son to his father. But now on the cross, he has a judicial relationship and he is now suffering the judgment of God that is legitimately to fall on all of uh, mankind. But then right after, we're going to see, he addresses him as father, which means the judicial relationship ends and the paternal relationship begins and it's at that point that he's now delivered from the eternal suffering that he has presently been experiencing that's the mystery that's the antinomy that's the paradox let me just go, go on a moment Mitch and then uh, the 20th stage just so that was his calling out my God my God but then in the 20 uh, or the 19th stage in the 20th 20th stage Verses 47 to 40, 49, we have the response of those who are standing by, hearing him cry out, Eli, Eli. In verse 47, they say, this man calls for Elijah. Now, the reason they think he's calling for Elijah is because the word Eli means my God. But it is also the short form for Eli, Yahu, Elijah. So they think they're, he's calling for Eli, short form for Elijah, to come and deliver him, rather than crying out, my God, my God. At least that's what they've heard. So then they say, 
they say. So then after they thought he was calling out for Elijah, and straightway one of them ran, took a sponge, filled it with vinegar, and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. Notice he doesn't have the gall or the myrrh because he was denying that. But now he he is offered something to drink because they want to see if in fact Elijah will come to deliver him. They're still looking for a sign that he's the Messiah. The reason why Yeshua takes the vinegar is because he still has other words to say from the cross. But his lips are getting parched and it's hard for him to speak. So he's now wetting his lips, as it were, so he can continue to uh, complete the death that he is to die and the scripture that he is to fulfill. So that we have in the 21st stage, as found in John's account, Verse 28, 29, in which we have uh, his fifth statement from the cross, I thirst. It's interesting that when you look at Luke chapter 16, as I made reference before, the rich man and Lazarus in Hades and paradise, the one thing the rich man asks for is for someone to dip his hand in water because he says, I thirst. It's interesting that, uh, that both individuals who experience, that we know of, that experiences the wrath of God, the thing that comes to mind prominently is the lack of water and the need for thirst and the suffering being one of uh, needing something to drink. Yeshua says the same thing. I thirst. Uh, The rich man in the story of Lazarus and the rich man says the same thing as well. I thirst. The 22nd stage is found in John verse 29. And there was, they set there a vessel full of vinegar. They put a sponge on the vinegar and hyssop, and they brought it to his mouth. And when he therefore received the vinegar, then he spoke. So the reason why he's taking the vinegar here, not mingled with gall or myrrh, is so that he can speak. His lips are getting dry. He's suffering. And now he needs to say these, uh, final, these almost or these final words from the cross. The 23rd stage is the sixth word from the cross in John's account, verse 30, in which he says, it is finished. In Greek, these, these three words, it is finished, is one word, tetelestai. Uh, the word tetelestai means it is finished, but it, it, it can be translated as finished, but it means paid in full. Archaeologists have uncovered uh, documents, manuscripts, that were lists of things that were bought. And at the end of the list, it said, um, te telestai, which means paid in full. So when Yeshua says it's finished, what he means is the reason why he died to make the payment for sin has been paid in full and thus provision for redemption and salvation is provided uh, completely for us. It's been fully paid. And therefore, by God's grace, when we receive him as our Messiah, all of our sin, past, present, future, has been paid in full. And there is therefore now no condemnation who are in Messiah who have had their sins paid in full. The 24th stage is the seventh and final word from the cross found in Luke's account, verse uh, 46, in which he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Notice he volun- 
voluntarily uh, dies. He voluntarily gives up his spirit. Notice here now we have reference to the Father. He says, not uh, God into thy hands, but Father. The paternal relationship is restored before he dies physically. And thus he's died spiritually and as it were resurrected spiritually before he dies physically and before he dies spiritually. So now he can re again address him once again as father because he has been restored into that paternal relationship. The 25th stage is found in Matthew's account verse 37 as well as Matthew's account verse 50, Luke's account verse 46, John's account verse 30. In, Matthew, in Mark it says, And Jesus, or Yeshua, uttered a loud voice and gave up his ghost. And so the final stage here is he died. And Messiah has given his life. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 to 4, we, there are three things everyone must believe in order to be saved, Paul tells us. He tells us what the gospel is. He tells us, number one, that he died for our sins. Number two, that he was buried. Number three, on the third day he rose again. So we want to look at those three things in the uh, final sections of the life of, of the death of Messiah. I would like to go through just, if you can give me maybe 15 minutes, a little more, then next week, we, not next week, but two weeks later when we come together, we'll start with the resurrection. So if, I, if we can just hang in there just a moment, uh, let me share some things here with you. First of all, um, let me just uh, sort of summarize some of the things that the death of Messiah provides. Scripture speaks about 16 different things the death of Messiah has provided. We don't always think about them, but I'm just going to rattle them off real quick. You can listen to them on, on a tape and uh, you'll get them. First of all, we're told that it provides satisfaction. That is to say, he fully completes all that the Mosaic law had anticipated. Secondly, he provides redemption. He buys us out of the marketplace of sin and sets us free in a new relationship with God. Thirdly, it provides, John makes reference to propitiation. It appeases the wrath of God. The wrath of God that we are accountable to and justly deserve, he satisfies and he fulfills. Remember, God is a just God. Sin must be judged. He uh, provides for that judgment on sin. It provides reconciliation. His death restores us in a new relationship. A relationship was broke. Now we are reconciled one to the other. We are reconciled to God. And uh, fourthly, it provides a ransom. That is a payment for our sin. A ransom uh, to the law. As the law found us guilty. And therefore he provides for that guilt. Sixthly, it provides, it provides the proof of the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How do we know God loves us? The death of Messiah. It provides judgment on the sin nature. Paul tells us that in Romans 6. Our sin nature, this principle at work within us, has been judged by Messiah's death. It marks the end of the law, Romans chapter 10. We are no longer under the law. We are no longer responsible to live in light of the law as a way of life. We can learn from the law, but we're no longer 
obligated to observe the law. Gentiles were never obligated to observe the law. And now Jewish believers no longer are obligated to the law of Moses because the death of Messiah sets us free. It is the end of the law for everyone who believes, Paul tells us in Romans uh, 10. The reason why many in the Messianic movement and in some churches, Seventh-day Baptists, for example, Seventh-day Adventists, still hover over the need to obey the law is because they have a low view of the death of Messiah. If they had a heightened enough view of what the death of Messiah meant, what it provided, and what was endured, we would all realize that the law has come to an end. There is nothing we must do in order for our salvation or in order to live a holy life. The death of Messiah provides it all for us. Further, it is the basis for the continuing cleansing of sin. Um, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is not your confessing that cleanses you from sin. It is the death of Messiah that cleanses us from sin. As we confess it, his death cleanses us from sin. It's his death that provides. It's not what we do. It's never what we do. It's what the Lord enables us to do. It becomes the basis for the removal of all our sin prior to uh, the death of Messiah. It provides the judgment of Satan in his, and his hosts. It says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. The death of Messiah has already judged the evil one and those who have identified themselves with him. It is the basis uh, for deferring the righteous divine judgment of God. Paul says that the judgment of God has not yet struck. Why hasn't God judged us? Because in light of the death of Messiah, he is postponing judging us now or judging the wicked now. Judgment will come, but he's not willing that any should be judged, any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's the death of Messiah that is postponing the judgment that is yet to fall. It's the death of Messiah that is keeping the door open for more people to be forgiven of their sin. The 14th thing here, it is the basis for our peace. The death of Messiah provides us with peace with God. It provides us with peace with ourselves. We no longer have to be focused on ourselves. There is a, uh, Tim Keller has a book entitled, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. How is it that we can no longer have to focus on ourselves, have to live up to other people's standards, have to impress others? When we look at what Yeshua has done for us, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks of us. It doesn't even matter. Paul says, I don't even judge myself in 1 Corinthians, what is it, chapter 5 or 6. No man judges me, Paul says. I don't even judge myself. It is God alone who judges me. How can we have that sense of freedom? Because of what Messiah has done for us in dying for our sins. It is the basis for the national salvation of Israel that will occur at the end of time. All Israel will be saved. When? When the deliverer, there's the death of Messiah, comes from Zion and turns away all ungodliness from Jacob. It's the basis for the establishment of the messianic kingdom. The kingdom cannot come unless Messiah dies and thus will provide it. The death of Messiah is so pervasive, it is the basis for just about everything 
that we experience in light of our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship to others, our relationship to the world. We can never deprecate it. We can never speak highly enough of the death of our Messiah. In the Messianic community, we have to be careful. We don't like to use words like cross because of how it is perceived by the unbelieving Jewish community. But sometimes in our zeal to be uh, communicating effectively with our Jewish uh, friends and neighbors and families, we uh, deprecate or minimize uh, this most important event in the life of Messiah, his death in our behalf. If we don't want to use the word cross, it's understandable, but let us speak often and let us speak highly of the death of our Messiah. That's why at Beth Ariel, once a month, we want to celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember, to put straight center at the heart and soul of our faith. Messiah came, Messiah died, Messiah rose again, and he's coming again. But all of the other is possible because he gave his life a ransom uh, for many. In paragraph uh, 166, we have these various signs that accompanied the, uh, the death of Messiah. If you look at Matthew's account, verse uh, 51, first of all, there was an earthquake. Secondly, in verse 52, Matthew 27, tombs were opened and saints were resurrected. We're told that after the saints were resurrected, after, and by the way, the tombs were opened, but the saints were not raised until after the resurrection of Messiah himself. Look at verse 52. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints that had died were raised, and coming forth out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered into the holy city and appeared unto many. We don't know anything more about their ministry, but they would have died subsequently. And we don't know who they were. It doesn't say prophets. It only says saints or righteous ones. And then in Mark's account, verse 38, it speaks of the renting of the veil. And the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. Keep in mind, the veil in the temple was 60 feet long. It was 60 feet tall. It was 20 feet wide. It was four inches thick. And the significance of the torn veil was to indicate immediate access to God was available to all. The book of Hebrews mentions that. Remember, up until that point, the only one who had immediate access to God was one individual from one nation, from one tribe, from one family and only one time in the year, the high priest. Now, the te- the, with the veil rent from top to bottom, if you were going to tear it, you'd tear it from bottom to top. But it was torn top to bottom and it indicated everyone has access. Now, we don't have any record of this in any uh, Jewish literature or any other subsequent literature, but we wouldn't expect it. Because the only ones who would see that were very few individuals who could enter into the holy place of the temple and see it. So they could have kept it to a small minority and thus ones who who were antagonistic to Yeshua's claims never spoke about it. So that makes some sense. But there were common 
Jewish legends that were written into the Talmud um, that are dated 40 years prior to the destruction of the temple. So we have these phenomena, but the Talmud writes of other phenomena. Josephus, for example, writes of the menorahs go, kept going, uh, uh, going out and being relit and, and, and being extinguished as a, as a weird sign that occurred 40 years before the destruction of the temple. Um, there is uh, w- one of the things that the Talmud and Josephus talk about is that 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the gates to the temple opened automatically. These huge gates that took uh, 10 or 15 guys to push open just opened automatically, not unlike the, renti- the renting of the veil of the uh, temple. We're told that uh, the lentil of the doorway to the beautiful gate of the temple cracked and fell. We're told that for um, years, when the Day of Atonement, the offering of the scapegoat, when the high priest placed his hands on the scapegoat and led it out of the city, they would tie a scarlet cord or a scarlet ribbon uh, to its horn. This was in accordance with Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. And according to this uh, Talmudic legend, is that for decades, maybe even hundreds of years, the high priest would tie a, a scarlet cord or a scarlet ribbon or thread to the horn of one of the goats that it led out. And as it would lead it out, they would note that the scarlet thread or cord would turn white in accordance with uh, Isaiah 1.18. Though your sins are scarlet, as it was being led out of the city, it would turn white. The Talmud tells us that 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the scarlet cord did not turn white, but remained red. The implication by the legends is that the atonement was now provided by the death of Messiah. Therefore, the atoning sacrifices in the temple no longer provided atonement for sin, not even a temporary covering for sin. So the sacrifices in the temple after the death of Messiah didn't do anything anymore. They continued to offer them up, but they had no relevance because the death of Messiah brought the law to an end. So the sacrifices were now meaningless. They had no purpose other than they were killing the animal. And these Talmudic legends even substantiate this idea by virtue of the fact that the scarlet cord no longer turned uh, into a, a white cord. In Luke's account, let me just run through because I want to try to get to this and we're running, running out of time. But in Luke's account, in uh, verse 48, uh, or excuse me, verse 47, we have f- further uh, results of these accompanying signs. In verse 47, we're told of the belief of the Gentile centurion. Uh, Luke verse 47, chapter 23. And when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God. He said, certainly this was a righteous man. So when he sees him die and he sees all these signs, he says, I'm believing in him. And he does. And in verse 48, we find while there's faith on the part of the Gentile centurion, There is fear on the part of the Jewish leaders. And all the multitudes that came together to this site, when they beheld the things that were done, returned, smiting their breasts, mourning and expressing fear. Is it mourning for their sin? Perhaps there's a turn. 
but uh, we see the beating of the breast as opposed to the um, the proclamation of Yeshua as God, as the centurion says, this man was a righteous man. In Matthew's account, truly this was the Son of God. And that's in verse 54, 55 of Matthew. In section 127, 167, we have stages 27 uh, through 30, the burial of Yeshua. In John chapter 19, verses 31 to 37, we have that none of the bones of Yeshua were broken. Notice he tells us that it was the preparation. That is the day before the Sabbath. This is a Friday, the Sabbath being on Saturday, so it is the preparation day. Notice Matt, John tells us, verse 31, that the Sabbath was a high day. The Sabbath was referred to as a high day when the first day of a festival falls on the Sabbath. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is falling on the Sabbath, so it is a high day. Notice, too, that preparation was a technical Jewish term for Friday. And notice he also tells us that a soldier pierced Yeshua's side, verse 34, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where they pierced him. We don't really know what this means medically. Some have said that it suggests he died of a broken heart with the water. But we don't really know that. It makes good preaching, but it's not necessarily accurate. But we do know John is the one who saw it. Verse 35. And he that hath seen hath borne witness, and his witness is true. The significance is that John is there when he sees him die. And in 1 John chapter 5, his letter, verses 8 to 12, he refers again to the water and the blood providing eternal life. So for John, the water and blood coming out signifies to him that Messiah has died and in dying provided eternal life. We know that much. The 28th stage is found in, um, in Mark's account, verse 42. And when evening was now come, because it was the preparation, there's a second time it's made reference to, that is the day before the Sabbath, that is the day before Saturday, so the preparation day is Friday. That Sabbath was a high day because that Saturday was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Two people come, Joseph of Arimathea, and Nicodemus. They come to request the body of Yeshua to bury him properly. Notice they come to Pilate, and Pilate, uh, we'll, we'll come to this, but Pilate is, or they ask Pilate uh, if he really died, and uh, he's told that they did. They break the knees of the other two so that they will die, but Yeshua is already dead. And thus he permits them to take the body. Now notice the descriptions of these men, or at least Joseph of Arimathea. Notice number one, we're told in Mark's account that he was an, uh, of honorable estate. So he was an honorable person, a person of recognition. Number two, in Matthew's account, verse 57, we're told he was a wealthy man. He was a rich man. Number three, we're told in Luke's account, in verse 50, that he was a good man. So he was honorable, he held a, a, a high estate, he was rich, and he was good. The fourth thing we're told about him in Luke's account, verse 51, is that he was righteous. So he was living up to the law to the best of his ability. 
Number five, fifthly, we're told in um, Mark's account in verse 43 that he was looking for the kingdom of God. He was a member of the faithful remnant. He looked forward to God's reigning. Sixthly, we're told in Mark's account, verse 43, that he was a counselor. That means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. But he was not there to vote. In Luke's account, verse 20, uh, excuse me, in verse 51, he said he had not consented to their counsel. He did not vote with them. So he did not vote. And the eighth thing we are told in uh, Matthew's account, verse 57, that he was a disciple. John's account, chapter 19, verse uh, 38, that he was a secret believer because of the fear of the Jews. And uh, so in John's account, in verse um, 38, he initially uh, feared the Jewish community, but now he boldly asks for the body of Yeshua in verse uh, Mark's account, verse 43. And boldly he goes to Pilate. Pilate checks in Mark's account, verse 44, to see if he is really dead. And the centurion, uh, he marveled that he was already dead so quickly. But the centurion tells him that he had died. And therefore, he gives permission for them to take the body. The 29th stage is found in John's account, chapter 19, verse 40. So they took the body of Yeshua, bound it, and notice, linen cloths. Not just one cloth. But in cloths, plural. So whatever the shroud of Turin is, it is not the shroud of Messiah. That's one cloth. But what we're told here is that there were multiple cloths that were wrapped around the body of Messiah. Verse 40. And with spices as the customs of the Jews were. Over 100 pounds of spices and alloys were the custom of the Jewish people. We can't go into all of that now. But that was, they would be wrapped around and there would be a separate face cloth placed on the face Of the deceased. In John's account, um, we have the 30th stage found in verse uh, 40. So they took the body. They removed the body from the cross. They wrapped it in the linen cloths. And then his actual burial found in John chapter 19 verses 41, 42. And now in the place where he was crucified, so right near there, there was a garden. That fits very well with the... um, church of the holy sepulcher there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb wherein was never a person laid so he was actually buried at some point in the preparation day friday night when three stars were visible the sabbath would begin and the and the text tells us that the sabbath in luke's account verse 54 drew on it was coming close but they get him buried before the sabbath in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we said that he died for our sins, but secondly, we are to believe that he was buried. And perhaps there are two possible theological significance to his burial. Notice that this is the last stage of Messiah's humiliation. He was buried by two men who were not in his ministry, but were secret believers. So in one sense, his burial signifies his humiliation because none of his disciples bury him, but two secret believers do. But it's not only the last stage of his humiliation, his burial is the first stage of his exaltation because he's buried in a rich man's tomb and he's buried in a privately owned garden tomb. So his death is an exaltation, as it were, his burial. Notice the the focus on the garden. Adam being the first Adam, 
brought sin into the world in the Garden of Eden. The second Adam, Yeshua, in a garden, provides us redemption from that sin. And then in paragraph 168, we have the sealing, as we're drawing this to a close now, we have the sealing of the tomb. And in the 31st stage, found in uh, Matthew's account, verse 61, and Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. So when the women go to the tomb, they know where to go. They were there before. Notice that the tomb is not a place they don't know where to go. They were sitting there. They beheld, Mark tells us, where he was laid. Luke tells us, and they beheld the tomb and how his body was laid in the tomb. So they know exactly where the body is so that on Sunday when they come to anoint the body, they know exactly where to go. The problem is they found the tomb was empty. They weren't lost. They knew exactly. They were sitting there. They beheld it. They saw it. And then we find uh, in the last stage that um, the 32nd stage found in Matthew's account, uh, verses 62 to 66, it says, Now on the morning, which is the day after preparation, the Sabbath, the chief priests and Pharisees were gathered together. They said, We remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, Three days I rise again. So they said, Command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure, sealed, until the third day, lest happily his disciples come and steal him away, and say unto the people, He's risen from the dead, and the last error will be worse than the first. So the day after the preparation day, the Sabbath, early Saturday morning, the elders of Israel remember Yeshua's statement that he would be raised on the third day. Interesting, his own disciples forgot that. They forgot he said he'd be raised on the third day. But somehow, those who were his enemies, those who opposed him, that stuck in their mind. Remember, the one sign he was giving to the Jewish leaders who rejected him, Matthew 12, paragraph 61, is the sign of resurrection. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights, so the Son of Man three days, three nights. And the one thing they remember is that final sign he would give to those who rejected him. And so for fear that someone will come and steal the body, they want to make sure that the temple, the tomb is guarded. So the pilot does two things. Number one, he sets up a Roman guard for those three days. By Roman law, if those guards fail to protect the interests that they are guarding, they have to pay for it with their lives. So for the Roman soldiers to not be on guard 24-7, they risk the death penalty so that nobody could have taken the body. Secondly, they seal the tomb. What they would do is they would provide a gutter in front of the tomb so that there is a, a, uh, like a gutter... And then you would have the tomb. So there's a space in between the tomb and the outside gutter, you might say. And between the gutter and the tomb, a stone is rolled. The reason they have that is because the tomb's going to be used uh, on other occasions. Because in Israel, remember, you don't just bury a body and leave it in the ground. There's not a lot of land in Israel. So what they did was they entombed bodies left it there for a year, then the body would decompose, they would take the bones out, and they'd put the bones in an ajuari, which was a box that was a receptacle for their bones. And then the next person dies, they roll the stone away, open the tomb, and they put the next person in there. 
They close the tomb up. Then after a year, they'll open it up, take the bones out, and put it in the ossuary with the other bones so that they collect the bones and they reuse the tomb. So here they roll the stone in front. Now they want it sealed. The way it was sealed is the Romans would put two hooks up on the top and they would hook these, uh, these uh, straps from one corner from here down to the bottom, secured into the wall, and then in front the other. So there's an X in front of the stone that is, uh, that is concealing the entrance. And then on top of that, they would take a cord and they would put the cord, they would take a wax seal, sealing the cord on the front of the stone. And then they would take a cord, put it to the wall with another Roman seal emboldened on the wax that would, uh, or clay, that would harden, or cement, that would harden, that would seal the tomb. And that's what they mean by sealing it. They don't just mean rolling the stone, that would be rolled. But then they would put the, the, these cords crisscrossing, and then they would put another cord that would be sealed with cement, and emboldened in the cement would be the imagery of Rome. So if anyone trespassed that, they're trespassing Roman territory worthy of death. So it secured the tomb. Now, uh, with that, we come to the resurrection. Let me just say one thing about Yeshua being in the tomb three days and three nights. Some have tried, there are different arguments. Some have suggested he died on a Tuesday, and therefore you have Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then he was raised. Some say he died on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and they try to come up with 72 hours uh, or thereabouts. But all of that is really unnecessary and it's not really biblically substantiated. First of all, uh, Yeshua did says three different things. In Matthew chapter 16, he says, I would rise on the third day. In Matthew 26 verse 61, he says, I would rise after the third day, which might imply to some fourth day. And then in Matthew 12, he says he would be in the tomb three days and three nights. Notice this too. All of those statements are from the same writer, Matthew. All of those are coming from the same gospel, so we don't have different writers with different thoughts in mind. Matthew knew what he wanted to say, yet he says the same thing three different ways. He would rise on, rise after, and be in the tomb three days and three nights. He records Yeshua's statements, those same uh, three different ways indicating one uh, singular event. Now, in Jewish thought, part of, a, part of a day counts for the whole day. In fact, in Jewish thought, part of a year counts for a whole year. So, for example, if a king came to reign on the throne of Israel in the 12th month of the year, and then he starts his reign the first month of the next year, it would say, and his second year, even though he only was reigning for one month. So we do have record where one part of a year equaled uh, a whole year. Similarly, one part of a day equals a whole day. So Yeshua was put into the, uh, put into the tomb on Friday before the Sabbath occurs. That is before the three stars appear in the sky, which was the definition of when the Sabbath would begin according to Jewish law. So if he's put into the tomb, and we know that because the preparation day is the day before the Sabbath, Friday. 
The Sabbath was a high Sabbath, meaning the first day of a Jewish festival fell on that Sabbath. The first day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the seven days following the Feast of Passover, which is one day. Thus, on Friday, he goes in the tomb before the three stars appear. Thus, he's in the, in the tomb Friday. He's in the tomb all day Saturday, and he rises from the dead early Saturday, uh, Sunday morning. Thus, he's in the tomb for three, the three days that is indicated, understanding that a part stands for the whole. Part of a year stands for the whole year. Part of a day stands for the whole day. However, not only do we, do we know that, but we know that part of Friday uh, stood for all Friday, Saturday, as I just shared. Interestingly enough, we have scripture that shows this. I'll just give you some verses. Genesis 42, verses 17 and 18. 1 Samuel 30, verses 12 to 13. 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 29. And 2 Chronicles 10, verses 5 to 12. But the most telling one is the book of Esther, which we recently read. In Esther chapter 4, verse 16... It says, have everyone fast for me for three days. And then it says in chapter 5, verse one, uh, verse 1, on the third day, she then went before the king. So the three days that they, it wasn't that they fasted three days and then on the fourth day, she went before the king. They fasted three days, but on the third day, she went before the king. Why? Because in Jewish reckoning, Part of a day equals a whole day. They fasted all three days, but at the end of that third day, she had, which she does go before the king to ask for an audience. One last thing is that um, the Talmud makes, makes reference that the death of Yeshua took place on the eve of the Sabbath, which would be Friday night is the eve of the Sabbath, and... On Passover day. So the Talmud also confirms that it was a Friday that he was on the cross. And it was a Friday that he died. And it was a Friday that he was put in the tomb. So um, uh, so what we'll do two weeks is we'll pick up with paragraph 169. We only have to go to 185. This is unbelievable. And uh, then we deal with the resurrection appearances and the ascension of Messiah. We should finish this up in two more sessions. And uh, that's amazing that I have to do this. And then I'll be able to uh, simplify things and, and do this in a, a less lengthier manner. Now, it's 9.20. So uh, what I want to do is I'm just going to cut it here. Let me close in prayer. If you need to go, please do. I don't want to keep you here any later. But if you have any questions, we can, uh, those that want to stick around for a little bit, maybe 10 minutes or so, uh, we can address those. But let me pray. Father, we thank you for this most uh, thrilling moment in the life of Messiah, most intriguing moment, and most glorious moment in that he paid the penalty for our sin and did so with great uh, dignity and with the uttermost desire to do your will and to do it completely and fully uh, to the smallest jot and tittle. And so, Lord, we are grateful that Messiah has come. We're grateful that he has done this for us. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we all would receive what he has done in our behalf and thereby be rendered uh, guiltless and be rendered forgiven 
because what he has done for us, he paid in full. We give you praise for that. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.